0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: And what's really tragic is that the the severity of the current crisis is entirely man-made. This was a congressionally manufactured crisis. And sad to say, it was a bipartisan manufactured crisis. Now, yesterday people were wondering, well, who's behind this? Well, I'm sad to say that one of the main sponsors of the 2006 law was Henry Waxman from California. So that was a bipartisan bill, and it required the Postal Service to pay 75 years in advance uh, future retiree health premiums. There's no company in America that is required to do that. Uh, No agency, no other agency is required to do that. And this put a five and a half billion dollar cost on the Postal Service per year for 10 years uh, at a time when the economy went off the cliff. And simultaneously all the big mailers, big corporate mailers, got provisions put into that law that prohibited the Postal Service from raising the rates. So what did they do? They, they massively increased our costs and they put a cap on rates. It was absolutely designed to crush the unions, uh, force labor concessions, and uh, lead to the breakup of the Postal Service.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Gray Brecken, Ying Lee, and Jim Stauber. Today's show, Art in the New Deal Post Offices and Postal Banking in the USA. These presentations were part of the Public Banking 2013 Funding the New Economy Conference, produced by the Public Banking Institute. We begin with historical geographer, author, and scholar Dr. Gray Brecken of the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Brecken is a project scholar for the Living New Deal. He has traveled the country visiting the historic New Deal post offices, constructed and decorated by New Deal builders and artists and brings back a tale of the dismantlement and privatization of this important part of U.S. history and commons. Gray Brecken. It's
2: great to be here. I'm going to be talking a bit about one part of the New Deal that particularly concerns me at this point because we're losing so much of it. In fact, we're losing all of the New Deal, but I'm going to talk about some of the physical things and the very beautiful things that we're losing. Um, this sculpture, by the way, is part of a series of sculptures at one of the New Deal towns, Greenbelt, Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C., in which the sculptor Eleanor Thomas illustrated the preamble to the Constitution and was paid by the WPA to do so. So um, we are losing the post office, as I'm about to show you, while the press sleeps on it. And I can come back to that later on. This is one of the New Deal post offices. They built about 1,100 of them as part of the uh, campaign to get the economy going. It's uh, just off Madison Square in New York. It's a jewel box. And I walked in there a few years ago to see the murals on the inside of it. Um, here's one of them, the immigrant experience in New York. Um, and I was stopped from photographing. That was the last photograph I was able to take by a clerk who said, you can't do that. I said, of course I can do that. My parents paid for that. It belongs to us. And she said, no, it belongs to us, the postal service. And I said, no, it doesn't. And if it does, does that entitle you to sell it? She didn't know. Well, we're answering that now. Uh, By the way, this is the... um uh, the plaque that you see going in, it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, they didn't spare on these things, and it shows the cast of characters. As I said, they did 1,100 post offices and many, many more murals and sculptures than that. Now, last November, I was in uh, briefly in uh, Philadelphia, and I went across the street from the train station to photograph This New Deal post office, it's the main post office right on the river, it's spectacular. Um, And I walked up to photograph the lobby and the guard stopped me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just photographing the lobby. And he said, you can't do that. It's not, not public anymore. I said, yes it is, we paid for it. And he said, no, it's been sold and if you try to take a photograph, we'll arrest you and take your camera. And I said to the guard, I said, you know, they're taking everything away from us. And he said, I know they are. Now get out of here. Um, So, fortunately, several years ago, I had photographed the lobby. This is it. This post office was sold by the Postal Service to the University of Pennsylvania, which then flipped it to a private developer for $30 million less. They sold it for $51 million. It, It was flipped for $30 million less to a developer who then leased it back to the federal government for use of IRS, but it's a private building now. We can't get into it. Now, um, I became aware of what was going on about two years ago when I found out that the downtown post office in Modesto was for sale. It's now, this is the inside the lobby with the uh, murals on it. It's all travertine, brass, beautiful, like those post offices of that time. And um, they said it was going to be relocated to a suburban shopping mall. Um, that is that is code for sold. Because by saying that they're just relocating these post offices, they get around all of the um, uh, the environmental laws, historic stuff, and, the, and they can really sort of just basically um, kick the um, public to the curb on this. Um, the, then the Ukiah post office came up for sale. Now it's interesting that Modesto and Ukiah are the um, county seats of their respective counties. These post offices are directly downtown. So that's been sold too. It's going to be turned into a restaurant, the other one into a condominium, um, and it was sold despite 5,000 signatures. Now, for Ukiah, that's pretty good, but people didn't want it sold. But the USPS just ignored them, as it always does. This was the mural on the inside. It was removed for restoration and relocation. It's now in Chicago somewhere. We don't know if, when or if it will come back um, the post office in Bethesda, Maryland, downtown Maryland, it's the only historic building left in Bethesda, right next to the metro stop. Um, it's been sold. The doors have been padlocked, although they're ajar, so that the mural on the inside of the local woman's cooperative um, has been deteriorating. I hear that they've just put it into storage, so we may never see that one again. Um, the um, post office in Crockett has been completely trashed. It might have been demolished. I shot this some time ago. Uh, the post office in Venice, with this wonderful mural, has been sold to the um, violence pornographer, Joel Silver, who's going to use it for uh, film production. And um, he says that the mural will be available six times a year by appointment. So that's keeping it public. The Redlands Post Office is um, sale pending now, although it's on the National Register. This wonderful woman, Carly Miller, has been fighting a one-woman campaign campaign to save it, uh, Camas, Washington is up for sale. See that sign? You can own a historic post office. Uh, you just, you know, pay $650,000 for it, and you could probably get them down on it. Uh, the post office in Reading, Massachusetts is sale pending. Um, the one in Annapolis is uh, pending. Berkeley's is pending right now. And um, this is the company that got the exclusive right to sell them back in 2011, CBRE, the world's largest commercial real estate company. Interesting, isn't it, that it's owned by um, Richard C. Blum, the alpha region of the University of California, who has been um, privatizing my university. Um, If you don't recognize Richard Blum, uh, there he is, right behind that waving guy, and There's his lovely wife, Senator Feinstein. This gives you some idea of the power of this couple, that they were flanking Obama. Michelle's not even in the picture. They're flanking Obama during his first inaugural. And they're major rainmakers for the Democratic Party. Well, here we are back in DC, where Diane spends so much of her time representing not us, but other people, Uh, I should say, people as corporations. this is the old post office. There's the first postmaster general, Ben Franklin. And uh, the, the old post office had just been sold to Donald Trump for a five-star hotel um, on Pennsylvania Avenue. Well, we have come a long ways from Ben Franklin and the whole idea of public service of the post office. This is in the Postal Museum. It was one of the past um, postmaster generals. Um, as I say, so many of them are decorated with Um, wonderful murals and sculpture. That's largely because of the work of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and some of these other gentlemen. This is actually from Quite Tower. Uh, These are the visionaries who created the arts projects during the Great Depression uh, to put artists back to work, at the same time building a democratic civilization. Now, here's something that um, Edward Bruce, one of those guys said, Um, in a publication. The money on this art project has produced a social worth which is impossible to estimate in actual money values as well as in permanent spiritual value. I believe that the government has received much more than it has spent. There is no doubt that some of this work will be known as great. Almost all of it will be in addition to our faith and our civilization. These guys spoke often in a language, I'm writing about this, the lost ethical language of New Deal public work. They were building and conceived of a civilization worthy of the name. Now, when is the present occupant of the White House ever spoken in those terms, let alone about poverty or mass extinction or, well, I should just calm down. Um, but... Um, but uh, <laughs> Here's another post office mural in Roosevelt's home, uh, hometown, Hyde Park, and this is what Roosevelt said about the murals in the post offices and elsewhere, that his administration would be remembered for the art projects because, of course, they're building a civilization, an American civilization. Now, here's the current postmaster general, the lineal descendant of Ben Franklin and Wanamaker and all the rest of them. He's quite a different... Um, piece of baggage. Um, This is what he said. The Postal Service is the first to acknowledge how important it is to preserve our historic buildings, which is why we are going through a lengthy and transparent process to assure their protection before they are sold. (laughs) Okay. Um, Oh, this is from the letter that he just wrote to Mayor Bates of Berkeley. He also boasted that he's just, you know, um, laid off Through attrition, 193,000 workers, another 40,000 are coming up. Um, This is his way of saving the Postal Service for FedEx and Pitney Bowes and UPS, which want their profit centers. Now, these post offices, which are in the heart of all of our major uh, cities and and, uh, towns, um, were emblems of community pride and the federal government, as you can see from this vintage uh, postcard. Um, bear in mind that in the 19th century, uh, the Vanderbilts and the Morgans and et cetera, the Huntingtons, the Stanfords, they went for the public lands outside of the city. Well, that land is gone, Um, as uh, Gar was saying this morning. What's now available is prime inner-city real estate at the heart of all of our cities, if you can get the contract to sell it, and CBRE, i.e., Mr. Richard Blum did. Okay. Okay. They are America's piazzas. This is where Americans come together. And I've heard lots of complaints about the post office from people who live in the city. They have no idea what a post office represents for rural towns, let alone elderly people, handicapped people, etc. The post office isn't extremely, especially if you want to vote by mail. You soon won't be able to do that, apparently. In many of the small towns, they are like little palaces, like in Merced. This is the... um, mural on the inside of Merced. Um, uh, San Jose. In the big cities, they really get palatial. This is Washington DC, the old post office department, now um, uh, the EPA. uh, Closed to the public, you can't get in to see the murals anymore unless you have special permission. Manhattan really got it big. Uh, This is the inside, the lobby of the uh, Farley Post Office. I'm just going to show you some of the lobbies. I want you to see how these buildings and these spaces, these public spaces, speak to us in a language which we have been persuaded to forget. There's an amplitude about them that you just don't get in the back of a Walmart or a CVS pharmacy, which is where they're moving to, relocating. Look at the furniture in these post that's in Minneapolis, this one's back in Washington, This was, this is the old San Francisco Post Office. By the way, at the end of it, you can still see the postal savings bank room where people transacted their banking. Uh, This is the newer San Francisco Post Office, uh, Rincon Annex, uh, San Jose. Love Poughkeepsie. We'll come back to San Pedro in a little bit. Look at the detailing on these buildings. Think of the artisans that they put to work. Uh, That one sale is pending. Um, And just the um, craftsmanship. I could give a whole lecture on the eagles of American post offices. So let's look at the artwork that's inside those buildings, inside so many of them. I have friends from Australia who love to come here and take road trips through the U.S. just so they can visit the post offices because they don't have anything like that in Australia. In fact, no country does. It's a unique American art form and it belongs to us. So... There are themes in the post office, murals, et cetera. Um, One of the most prevalent is local history and legends. This is um, the um, legend of Sleepy Hollow in Troy, New York, near the Catskills. Um, The the arrival of the train. Uh, The pioneers are always popular. Um, Here's Berkeley. As, uh, As is conquest, Monterey. As is the meeting of the new settlers with the original inhabitants, such as in Poughkeepsie, for example. Ooh, look, who's come? I wonder what, what they have to bring us. <laughs> um, the Pueblo Indians. There they are, looking with a little bit of apprehension at these guys, the conquistadors who are coming in. And then, this is one of my favorites in Hopewell, Virginia, this is making friends with the Indians. Would you like to see my cabin? <laughs> my etchings, perhaps? Um, now, in most post office murals, of course, the meeting of the, of the cultures is friendly. Um, the, big, the greatest murals are over in San Francisco at the Rincon Annex, the old post office, um, by Anton Refregier. There's an implied criticism here in that the Indians were the ones who provided the labor to build the missions while that guy in the back was preaching from a book. Um, One thing you were not supposed to paint in the murals in post offices was violence. Refregiae went beyond that. Um, There's lots of violence in them. And that's part of the reason that these murals and history itself were put on trial in Washington in 1953. came very close to being destroyed. Another theme that you see over and over again is work and local economies because, of course, this is not being done during the Depression when work is on everybody's minds, jobs, because they don't have them. So you see over and over again, work. um, This is what people wanted, what they needed to get the economy going again. Modesto again. Agriculture is a big theme, including industrial agriculture. This one's gorgeous. Now, um, let's see what's happening. These are Ben Shahn's series of murals in the Bronx Central Post Office. Um, Sale is pending on that building. There are 13 of them. Those murals showing work, industry in the U.S., are worth more than the building and the land that it's on. Let's go back to the Rincon post office because what Refregier was trying to do in this series of murals that he did, 28 in all, was to show the history of San Francisco as the history of human civilization seen through the eyes of labor. It should be labor's Taj Mahal. So you get to see work, the building of the railroads, the building of the Golden Gate Bridge, the arsenal of democracy, and their multiracial. This got him into trouble too. The Hearst papers said that Mr. Um, Refregier seemed to be obsessed with Negroes. Um, Okay, this is Salinas. Um, It has sculptures of a vaquero and a a wrangler. Uh, Sebastopol has a wonderful mural of the local source of of wealth. Um, This is down in Culver City. Um, This apparently was the set of Gone with the Wind as they were striking it. Um, Redwood City has a mural of um, workers gathering gladioli and other flowers. It's a reminder of forgotten industries that have disappeared. And South San Francisco shows the industrial side of the city as well as Butchertown down there. Now, one of the other things that you see over and over again in post office art is the postal service itself heroized and glorified. I should say the workers. Um, Whether it's in Freeport, you can see transportation, But above all, communication and the workers. Uh, These are huge sculptures on the other Philadelphia post office. I don't know whether it's been sold yet. Mail delivery in the east, the west, the south, and the north. And this is on the outside of it. I don't know what that represents, but it's just wonderful. (laughs) Stockton, the stagecoach. Same thing, also in Stockton. And right here in San Rafael, um, that post office is also for sale, so you could go over and see the mural while it's still there. Um, this is an in Independence. I haven't seen this one, but it gives you an idea. Imagine what it would be like to be a worker in the post office and see yourself heroized. I mean, there is a heroism in letter carriers, for example, which we, who stay in our homes, we too often forget, actually. It's dangerous and hard work. And it's getting harder as Mr. Donahoe cuts back. Here's reading letters from the mailbox and another one in Burlingame, also for sale. My favorite is San Pedro, a beautiful building and a glorification of the work, the public work that postal workers do. Okay, and this is on the Berkeley Post Office. It's a sculpture by David Slivka, again, uh, heroizing the postal workers and... That guy is holding up a package, and there's an address on it. It says, From David Slivka to all mankind, truth abode on Freedom Road. You have to get a binocular to see that. But it was his message. All right. Uh, Anton Refregier painted the great Rincon annex murals um, after the war. Uh, The war had interfered with it, so he came back and did it. And this is um, a mural on the section representing the arts. It took me years to figure out what was happening here. What it is is by 1946-47, those art projects have been abolished along with so much else of the New Deal Public Works program. So he shows the artists working on a wall, sculpting and painting, and then at the end it says Federal Art Program, and it gives its beginning and its end. It's its tombstone. It's the end of it. We had that brief period that renaissance with the sponsorship of the visionary Roosevelt administration. Okay, so this is all to remind us that we own these buildings and we own this art, and it's being taken away from us right now, and the press is paying no attention. It's absolute, I can't tell you how many reporters from the New York Times down, television reporters I have talked to who will do a story and they will never mention the involvement of CBRE, Dianne Feinstein, and Richard Blum. So um, in Laborfest next month, we're going to actually have a panel in Laborfest called Too Big to Name. <laughs> and it's going to be about the complicity of the press. And we're going to have that vanishing species investigative reporters come to talk about what has happened to journalism in the last few years. That's very much what Matt Taibbi talked about last night that there's no cops on the beat anymore. And so these guys can get away with anything. But not in Berkeley. Um, We've really been putting up a fight. This is one of the many demonstrations outside. And you can go to the website, savethebppostoffice.com, to find out what the activists are doing Uh, This is one of the hearings, one of the fruitless hearings that we had with the Postal um, Service people. Um, It was standing room only, people out the door, etc. It didn't matter. About a month later, they announced they were going to sell the post office. But you can go to the the National Post Office Collaborate.com website because we're launching legal action against them. And we're building... We're building a nationwide coalition of affected communities because everybody thinks that they're alone. But increasingly, people in Chelsea and the Bronx and Redlands, et cetera, they're standing up. Now, they will be crushed unless we can get the money for the legal action because this has never been challenged in court before. Um, you can get those links by going to my Alternate article. I, this was just posted. But anyway, go to Alternet and um, just in that search box up on the right, just uh, type in my name and it'll take you right to it because they archive things pretty quickly. So it'll give you all of the um, links that you need. Finally, um, go to our website, The Living New Deal, it's headquartered over at the Geography Department in Berkeley. We are mapping, we're documenting and mapping the physical legacy of the New Deal. Not only did those public works programs put millions of people to work, as Tim just said, getting the economy going again, but it left us an extraordinary collection of beautiful buildings, parks, airports, sewage systems, We're using it all the time. Even Republicans use it. Tea partiers use it. And they don't know it and they don't want to know it. So we're going to make them know it by mapping it. We're up to 4,000 points. We're now doing a project of, we've already pretty well mapped New Deal San Francisco. Next step is New Deal Washington, D.C. I want to rub it in their faces how much of Washington is thanks to Franklin Roosevelt and the people he gathered around himself. Harry Hopkins. (laughs) Harold Dickies. Honest Harold Dickies. Mariner Eccles, and of course, his wife, his incomparable wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, and the people she gathered around herself as well, too. We do need contributions. We're running on fumes right now. It's amazing what we've accomplished, but we really do need contributions. If you need to know more, contact us. Um, And you can also become involved in the Living New Deal, which is democratic, it's all over the country, and there's never been anything like it. The long-term goal is to build the nation's first New Deal museum and memorial to those millions of people who brought us out of the Depression, not just to the ones at the top, the CCC boys, the WPA workers, all of them. They've never been thanked for what they did. We thank the veterans of our wars, we have never thanked the veterans of our great and forgotten peacetime armies. And that's what our our New Deal Museum and Memorial will be. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to historical geographer, author, and scholar, Dr. Gray Brecken of the University of California, Berkeley. Visit www.savethebpo.com, www.savethebpo.com, NationalPostOfficeCollaborate.com, www.livingnewdeal.berkeley.edu, and net We continue with former Berkeley City Council member Ying Lee, who addresses the Infrastructure Privatization Act of 1992. Today's show: Art in the New Deal Post Offices and postal banking in the USA. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Good morning.
3: I walk by our central downtown Berkeley post office and it's just part of my normal background and um, that it's one of the services that I expect and one of the landmarks I see. The stores around it empty and they're replaced sometimes and sometimes not for a long, long time. Uh, The commercial changes are constant, but we do take for granted in Berkeley anyway that City Hall, the high school, and the main post office are the anchors to a sense of geographic community. And now our post office, oddly enough, is being put up for sale. And this surprised me, I should say, by about, oh, less than a year ago that 3,500 post offices, most of them in expensive property areas like Berkeley, La Jolla, Santa Barbara, New York, Philadelphia, and mostly in the blue states, as it turns out, have been sold, are being sold, and um, uh, will be sold unless we stop them. Uh, when we mapped the 50 initial uh, post offices that have either been sold or are being sold, uh, we were really surprised by the fact that mostly in the coastal areas and mostly in blue states. None in Texas, none in the red states. And it has partly to do, of course, with the value of the land upon which the post offices sit and the the placement. But I'm sure that it may just have a little connection to other elements. I learned that 41 years ago, the Reagan administration's high-flying path Moving us away from New Deal values, that they had shifted the post office a cabinet level position. Remember James Farley? He was a very, very important cabinet member. Uh, that it was being moved into a semi independent federal agency mandated to be revenue neutral, to break even, not make a profit, or to be in the red. What a gorgeous plum the post office is for the right wing. Blue cities with expensive downtown values transferring the profitable parts of postal operations to the private sectors. Like the contract, and looking up on the wonderful, wonderful internet, notice that there are 120 private corporations contracting to do postal work. The uh, biggest is FedEx for $1.5 billion dollars for seven years. And that's not all. The um, Postal Service has 150 top private corporations like Kalita Air, annual contract, 548 million. Northrop Grumman, 410 million. United Air, 103 million. UPS, 102 million. And UPS tried very, very hard to get the FedEx contract, lobbying with all its might, but it lost out to FedEx. With each one of these companies making big profits, and I doubt any with union labor, it's no wonder the postal service is in the red. In addition to the prepayment of health insurance, which you've been told about, of $7.5 billion a year, and overpayment and capturing of union pension funds of 50 to $70 billion, no wonder the post office is in the red. So I didn't know until I started to look into this that back in George Bush I, during his days, he passed an executive order which is called the Infrastructure Privatization Act, April 30th, 1992. Anyone hear of this? I hadn't. And this is what Section 3 says, Privatization Initiative. To this extent permitted by law, the head of each executive department and agency shall undertake the following actions. A, review those procedures affecting the management and disposition of federally financed infrastructure assets owned by state and local governments and modify those procedures to encourage appropriate privatization of such assets consistent with this order. They're mandated to do this to modify those procedures to encourage appropriate privatization of such assets consistent with this order. And that was 1992. And they've been busily working at this, and we have not even been aware of this executive order to every federal agency. Thank you so very much. You've been listening to
0: Ying Lee. Ying Lee was a former aide to Congressman Ronald Dellums and former legislative director for Congresswoman Barbara Lee. We continue with Jim Stauber. Jim Stauber is chief of staff for the National Association of Letter Carriers located in Washington, D.C. Jim Stauber spoke on postal banking in the USA and how to create new revenue streams for the U.S. Post Office. Today's show... Art in the New Deal Post Offices, and Postal Banking in the USA. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: Well, thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. It's really been a pleasure to be here, to be out of the insanity of Washington, just for a few days, to, to have an adult conversation with uh, committed activists, and it's just an absolute pleasure to be here. I think I'm really here because of the power of the written word. You know, Alan wrote an article about postal banking, and that inspired one of our best activists in the union, who I think is here today, Dave Welsh from our local branch in San Francisco. And I uh, want to thank him because he, he uh, used Ellen's work to uh, propose a resolution at our national convention in Minneapolis last summer. And that resolution was adopted, and it calls for the investigation of the creation of a postal savings bank. And so that's one of the reasons I'm here, and I'm really uh, thankful for Dave for doing that. Um, Ying just covered a bit about the crisis, it, it got mentioned yesterday when, when Gray spoke. Um, I'll just say that we see a public banking option as one of the best solutions for saving the Postal Service and so that's why we as a union are dedicated to working with all of you to find a way to make that happen. Um, as Ying mentioned, the, the crisis we're facing is sort of a perfect storm. There's a structural crisis facing almost every paper-based industry. We all know that. The newspaper industry, magazine publishing, there's really no, nobody being spared. So we do have a serious underlying technological problem. In addition, though, and what's really tragic, is that the, the severity of the current crisis is entirely man-made. This, is a, this was a congressionally manufactured crisis. And sad to say, it was a bipartisan manufactured crisis. Now, yesterday, people were wondering, well, who's behind this? Was it Susan Collins? Well, I'm sad to say that one of the main sponsors of the 2006 law was Henry Waxman from California. So that was a bipartisan bill, and it required the Postal Service to pay 75 years in advance uh, future retiree health premiums. There's no company in America that is required to do that. Uh, No agency, no other agency is required to do that. And this put a $5.5 billion cost on the Postal Service per year for 10 years uh, at a time when the economy went off the cliff. And simultaneously, all the big mailers, big corporate mailers, got provisions put into that law that prohibited the Postal Service from raising the rates. So what did they do? They they massively increase our costs and they put a cap on rates. It was absolutely designed to crush the unions. Uh, forced labor concessions, and uh, lead to the breakup of the Postal Service. So over the last seven years, the Postal Service has recorded $40 billion in losses. $32 billion of that come from the pre-funding mandate. So this company is is in desperate trouble, and this public service is in in desperate trouble because of what Congress did. Um, We've been fighting as a union uh, for reform that would maintain the Postal Service as a government-owned universal service. Uh, Unfortunately, we've been on the defensive, particularly since the Republicans came back into into power in the House. Uh, Their plans, um, I only have to say one name, and you'll know what the kind of plan it is. The chairman of the committee that writes the legislation on Postal services is is Daryl Issa. So the Issa plan is essentially to put the Postal Service into receivership, uh, bring in a control board, and just basically mandate closing half the post offices in the country, eliminating half the mail processing plants, Uh, cutting door-to-door service. Imagine if you're elderly or disabled, the idea that they're gonna build a community mailbox halfway down the street uh, for you to go get your mail. And you know, obviously from our point of view, there's provisions to allow this financial control board to essentially rip up our labor contracts and impose concessions. So we've been fighting very hard Fortunately, the Postal Service has tremendous public support. Uh, The Postal Service in the recent Pew uh, Trust survey found that 83% of Americans had a favorable view of the Postal Service. Uh, And and despite a lot of rhetoric from the right wing, people realize that it's an incredibly valuable service and incredibly affordable, that you can reach any other of 150 million addresses six days a week for $0.46. Cents. So we, we've been fighting resisting this, and because of, I think, that popularity, Daryl Issa couldn't even get a vote on his bill in Congress. John Boehner would not even let him bring it up uh, before last year's election. So we've been pushing an alternative plan. Our plan is our basic message is don't dismantle this institution. Reinvent it. Improve it. Expand it. There's all sorts of new services that could be provided if we had the courage to do it. We are pushing initiatives like Vote by Mail, which has transformed our democracy, and especially on the West Coast. In Oregon, they do all their elections by mail. That's the only option. They get 87% turnout. That's great for progressive politics. We've advocated letting the Postal Service do meter reading for utility companies. All over the country, there's huge fights in public utility commissions to put expensive remote remotely censored meters across the country. Our members are going door-to-door every day of the week, six days a week. This could be a service that we could provide through the Postal Service. We could we could do state and local government services th- from the post office. We could create recycling centers of the kind they have in Germany. In Germany, if you sell electronic equipment, you're required to recycle that equipment when you're done with it. They, they have a system with the Deutsche Post to return those those electronic uh, you know, cell phones and tablets to the companies for proper uh, recycling. It's an excellent new business service. Uh, and of course we're interested in promoting banking services which has brought all of you here this week. Um, of course this would be a, a very natural network for for banking services. The Postal Service despite these closures still has 32,000 post offices all over the country. And most importantly, they're located in our communities where they're accessible. And so many banks have have sort of left rural America on its own. In many cities, I read in Business Week last week that uh, the number of bank branches in urban settings has declined by about 2,500 since 2008. And there's a prediction that 40% of banks, uh, bank branches, private bank branches, will close in urban America over the next 10 years. So we have a very trusted position Postal Service has won the most trusted federal agency in a, an annual survey by the Poneman Institute in terms of protecting the privacy of American citizens, and ha- as I mentioned before, there's a lot of public support. Now, can you can imagine making a proposal in today's Washington to start a postal bank? Uh, can you imagine how that goes over with the Tea Party and the right wing. So, you know, there's almost a suggestion that it's un-American. Well, as Ellen's um, research has shown and history indicates, our own history shows that's not true. We had a very successful postal savings bank in the United States that operated between 1911 and 1966. It was inspired by the the British model that is traced all the way back to the 1860s. And it was geared towards working-class Americans. Uh, small, low-income savers provided a, a way, particularly for migrant workers, uh, immigrant workers who didn't have a lot to save, but a very low-cost, affordable way to save and keep their money in a safe place. Uh, thanks to just repeated um, bank panics in the 19th century and early 20th century, and particularly the 1907 panic, which uh, caused thousands of banks to fail everywhere, Congress adopted a postal savings bank in 1910 this bank had faced tremendous resistance from the start. Private banks did everything they could to hamper its growth. They put caps on how much the account balances. The initial balances were limited to $500. That was raised over time. It eventually rose to $2,500 in in the 1950s. There was a cap on the interest rates that could be paid on the savings account. Uh, They required the Postal Service, rather than invest the money in the communities. They required the postal service to put their deposits in other private banks, which was obviously not a model we'd want to replicate today. Uh, But nonetheless, it was very successful. By 1947, there were 4.2 million Americans who had an account at the post office, and they had assets of $3.4 billion, and an average account balance of about 800. In today's dollars, that would be about $30 billion total and an average account balance of $8,000. Now imagine if those kinds of resources were available for community investment. So after the war, of course, um, with the the Depression came the FDIC, which was a very good thing, uh, deposit insurance. So that really sort of doomed the Postal Savings Bank, at least as it was constructed. With a cap on interest rates and the economy booming, the Postal Service really couldn't compete with private banks on the interest they paid on accounts and the Postal Service Bank went into decline. Uh, So by 1966, the Congress voted to disband the system. Um, So you might think, well, that's an old idea. It went out of fashion. But if you look around the world, and Jamie mentioned that she's an account holder at the Post Bank in Switzerland, uh, postal savings banks are common all, all across the globe. More than a billion people have accounts at postal savings banks around the world. Some of the fastest growing banks in the world in China and India are postal banks. There are 51 fully functioning banks among the members of the Universal Postal Union. Uh, I think the most famously successful bank is probably the Japanese Postal Savings Bank. It had, at one point, assets of $1.7 trillion. It's the biggest bank in the world. It was literally the bank that rebuilt Japan after the war. Uh, at, at its height, uh, it was unfortunately privatized. Uh, about f- five or six years ago. It still operates, but it's in the process of being privatized. But at its height, 85% of Japanese households had a, an account at the Japanese Savings Bank. And 61% of Japanese households uh, bought insurance from the Japanese Postal Savings Bank. So it had a huge impact on the rebuilding Japan. Now I think it's really interesting to look at why, what it was that, that led to the privatization of the, of the Japanese bank. It was essentially driven by the American Chamber of Commerce in Tokyo. They just could not compete with a bank that the Japanese people liked so much and government policy favored. Uh, the Japanese were allowed to keep up to $85,000 in the Japanese Postal Savings Bank and the interest on it was, was uh, tax-free. So this gave them a tremendous source of, of capital. So what do what all the neoliberal economists complain about? These, these are the two big complaints about Japan. Japanese save too much, and they invest too much in public infrastructure. Yeah, that's, that was the criticism. Now, look at what our situation. Uh, you know, we talked yesterday about the, the legacy of the New Deal. Our situation is just the opposite. We don't save anything, and we stop public investing at all. This seems to me the solution to our problem. If we could mass the kind of, uh, of resources to reinvest in, in American infrastructure, this could be the model to do it, and we have, the, we have the network in place to make it happen. Now, just so you know, there was a time that most European uh, post offices had, had postal savings banks, along with telecom companies and telegraph. These PTTs uh, were developed all after the war. Most of them, just like the Washington Consensus infected economic policy all over the world, And so all during the 70s and 80s, all these PTTs were broken up and and broken apart and sold off. What's interesting is that many, many countries in Europe that sold their postal banks have now, these post offices have now initiated new postal banks just in recent years, France and Britain in particular. In Germany, they sold off the postal bank to Deutsche Bank, and five years later, the post office bought it back. They found out it's a good business. It's good for the mail business as well as finance. So uh, this is something that's not out of fashion or old-fashioned. It's actually a current trend in the world to create postal savings banks. In New Zealand, for example, in 2002, many uh, rural communities had just been abandoned by the big banks. Most of them are Australian. There's four big Australian banks that dominate New Zealand finance. Um, They just uh, abandoned many parts of rural New Zealand, so the New Zealand Post set up Kiwi Bank, their own postal bank, Within a, a, a year or two, they had 800,000 accounts in New Zealand. doesn't sound like a lot, but there's only 4 million people in New Zealand. So they have, they have 100% coverage, and it shows that there's, there can be a, quite a demand for it. Similarly, in Italy, uh, back in the late 19, 1990s, uh, Italy's changed from being sort of a post office bank, changed from being a sort of correspondent bank to setting up a bank of their own and over time they've added checking accounts, foreign exchange services, electronic payment systems. Now, now it's a major source of profit that is funneling investment into the postal infrastructure itself. It ended decades of annual losses for the postal service in Italy and now turned it into a profitable public institution. In Brazil, I think is in some ways really a, a, an important case for us because we have a tremendous problem in the United States with financial exclusion. I think the latest FDIC survey said 28% of American households are unbanked or underbanked. That's tens of millions of people. In Brazil, they had the same problem. They created a postal bank in 2000. Now, this was a right-wing government, so, of course, they prohibited all the public banks in Brazil from bidding on the contract. But the private bank that did get the contract ended up opening 6,000 branches all across the country, including 2,000 in cities that never had a bank before. And it's had a tremendous powerful impact on these communities. Uh, in addition to, to allowing folks to have a banking account at the post office, th- this was combined with a microcredit facility that allows account holders to borrow up to the, the value of their account. So, this microcredit facility has spawned the development of tens of thousands of small businesses. Uh, 140,000 accounts opened up in the first month and now in just 10 years they have 10 million accounts across Brazil. It's a very successful bank and thankfully when Lula's party came in, they renegotiated and reopened the bid and a public bank, Banco do Brasil, uh, won the contract. If you want to know how successful the bank is, Banco do Brasil paid 10 times the amount that the private bank paid when they put the bank up for bid again. And they committed $1.7 billion to it, and they were also agreed to pay $370 million to provide banking services for all sorts of Brazilian public agencies. So this is a, a perfect example of public agency putting public money into a public bank to serve the public good. It's an excellent model for us. And what's been particularly good for the Brazilian post office is that a lot of the profits have been funneled into buying new vehicles, offering new services, adding logistics, and just actually improving the public service instead of dismantling it. So how are we going to do this in the United States? This is a, this is a challenge, particularly in the world I live in, which is our building is literally kitty-corner to the U.S. Capitol. And I, here I have, I'm afraid I've committed the sin that Rabbi Lerner warned us against, about being practical. It would be very self-defeating if we just put out a proposal, uh, put in legislation to create a full-scale postal savings bank in the United States Postal Service at the moment. So what the NALC has been focused on is looking at two avenues to get our foot in the door. Uh, One is there's a tremendous debate and a lot of bipartisan support in the Congress about creating a national infrastructure bank. The problem is the Tea Party has blocked any efforts to do so because there's a price tag. There's a $10 billion price tag just to capitalize this infrastructure bank and various, uh, various different bills that have proposed it. What if we used Postal Savings Bank's voluntary accounts set up in the Postal Service to, to capitalize a National Infrastructure Bank? It would be easily done. Uh, this would not be a use of any taxpayer money. These would be accounts set up by Americans voluntarily in the Postal Service with the understanding that the Postal Service would use the money for a National Infrastructure Board for nationally significant uh, infrastructure projects. Similarly, another area, Avenue in that is to build on an existing service we have that is way too limited. The Postal Service does offer uh, money orders. They do more than a million money orders a year. Um, and they do offer uh, international remittance services to a selected number of, of countries, uh, in Latin America. It's called the dinero seguro. Uh, it serves nine countries in Latin America and it's really targeted towards that huge number of immigrant workers in the United States that send home tens of billions of dollars every year uh, to their families in the countries from which they come. Um, at least fifty to sixty billion dollars sent from the U.S. every year. That's probably an underestimate because there's a lot of black market remittance services the vast majority of folks go to very small, often they payday loan operations or, uh, you know, pawn shops or, you know, places in their neighborhoods that charge an enormous amount of money. The World Bank has found that fees on a typical, the average remittance service from the United States, remittance payment, is about $200, and the fees average up to 25%. So the Postal Service on their existing uh, service charges 5%. And we could get that service way down low if we expanded this to make it a universal remittance service. So NALC has worked with our global union, Uni Global Union, in Switzerland. Um, It's based in Neon. And we've been working with the Universal Postal Union, which is a UN agency that regulates international mail flows. Uh, They've developed a system called the IFS, International Financial Service. It's a very low-cost system designed to be put in post offices all over the world. It costs only about $20,000 for the software, which for a lot of African countries would be a lot, but most of their installations have been paid for through grants from the World Bank. Uh, This system allows literally anybody to send money from one post office to any other post office in the world. There are 660,000 post offices in the world. This provides a universal remittance service, and we could build that service in the United States Postal Service. So, what, what I'm really excited about when we, these are the sort of the two avenues that we were looking at to try to get into this business, even you know, over the last four or five years. And getting, you know, Alan's article and Dave's resolution and my being here this week has really opened my eyes to all sorts of other options. I mean, we, we talked earlier about the brother from uh, Orlando about the city putting all their money in Wells Fargo. Imagine if we could establish public banks all over. Uh, the country and mandate through Congress that the Postal Service deposit its revenues in the the public banks. The Postal Service's annual revenues right now is about $65 billion a year. It's a tremendous cash flow all the time that could serve to capitalize local public banks. So we don't have to go all the way with a full-scale bank. It's clear from this week there's lots of in-between steps that we can build some momentum on this idea. So I'm really happy to announce today that um, we've been having conversations with Mark uh, Armstrong. And uh, I've reached out to our, our brothers and sisters in the American Postal Workers Union. See there's, there's two very large national unions. Between us, we have about 550,000 members. And we've, um, both unions have agreed to financially support a project uh, in partnership with the PBI uh, to explore and investigate options for a postal bank. Good.
0: Good. Good. Good.
1: Good. So, so we have a. You know, this is going to be the 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 easy part is going to come up with these wonderful plans. I'm afraid, the hard part is going to be getting it through Congress. Uh, so we have a big fight ahead of us. Um, the, I guess first, the first thing's first for us, um, and this is where I'm really here to make a plea to all of you, uh, to help us win this fight to save the Postal Service. There, it's just a tremendous... Um, one of the, I'll just give you three, three avenues for you to do that. Uh, first of all, the, the National NALC has set up a, a coalition, and to be brutally honest, we've sort of focused on red states for this uh, to try to pressure to get the votes uh, that we need. But if you go to deliveringforamerica.org, You can learn about a coalition that we've built that includes now more than 5,000 small businesses, chambers of commerce, veterans' organizations, organizations for senior citizens that are fighting with us to to support uh, sensible postal reform. There's also many, and our San Francisco branch is at the forefront of this. There's a group called Community and Postal Workers United, that uh, includes a whole range of community organizations that are working all over the country to protest these post office closings, uh, to fight for jobs in the processing plants, and to make sure that Congress feels some heat from the voters on fixing the Postal Service. And there's also an excellent uh, source run by an NYU professor who started on this just because his local post office uh, was going to be closed, and now it's become an absolute great source of information on closings all over the country. It's called SaveThePostOffice.com. If you could uh, find ways to get involved with this fight, we would really appreciate your help. Um, let me just say that um, you know I'm, I really was inspired by Gara Perwitz's admonition today to really think long-term. We're laying the groundwork for something really special. I laughed about it because in doing research on the history of our postal savings bank, I found that the first bill to create a postal savings bank in the United States was introduced in 1877. (laughs) So it took from 1877 to 1910 to get it done. So I'm here today hoping that in the age of the Internet uh, that we can get it done a lot faster. And the one thing we have today that they didn't have in 1877, for one thing, we have unions uh, that are there to fight, and we're going to do it. And the other thing we have is we have the PBI in all of you. So I really thank you for having me here today.
0: You've been listening to Jim Stauber. Today's show has been Art in the New Deal Post Offices and Postal Banking in the USA. Jim Stauber is Chief of Staff for the National Association of Letter Carriers based in Washington, D.C., Visit www.deliveringforamerica.org and www.savethepostoffice.com. The presentations on New Deal post offices, the privatization of the U.S. Postal Service, and postal banking in the USA were part of the larger Public Banking Institute's Public Banking 2013, funding the New Economy Conference of June 2nd through 4th, In San Rafael, California. The Public Banking Institute's vision is to fund the new economy with cheap and affordable credit generated from the deposits that city, county, and state governments currently place in Wall Street banks. In California alone, taxpayers have tens of billions of dollars of credit that is being used by the Wall Street banks to serve the interests of the private banks, not the public. The existing monetary and banking system rewards those who impose scarcity on others. Visit www.publicbankinginstitute.org. That's publicbankinginstitute.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or other copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's b.l.f.a.u.l.k.n.e.r at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot